Hey everyone, there is some strong language in today's episode, including a couple of F-bombs. I've not beeped anything out, so I thought I should let you know about it beforehand. Let's get to the show. This is Season 2, Episode 7. I'm opening today's episode by reading a poem by the writer Stephen Dobbins. If you don't know him, he's this amazing, versatile writer. He's equally strong, writing poetry. He has 14 books of poetry, another 13 books of fiction. And he even has a series of 10 mystery novels that I absolutely love. They're set in Saratoga Springs, New York. If you haven't read them, I recommend checking them out. It's just a ridiculous amount of great writing to come from one person. It's so much good stuff that you wonder why you even try. Do you know what I mean? I found my way to Dobbins' work because someone shared his poem with me when I was in graduate school in the 90s. I think it was my now wife, but I'm not 100% sure. It would make sense, though, that it was her because she knew me well enough to know that this poem would resonate with me. She knew the worries I carried around with me about the future and the anxieties I was holding on to about the past. And to be honest, the resonance of this poem has only grown as our life has progressed and we started a family. It's hung out in my brain, a thing that's taken hold in the quiet moments, in which you catch yourself thinking about your life as it is and how you might have imagined it to one day be. The poem is called How to Like It, from his collection Cemetery Nights, and I wrote him a letter, an actual paper letter, about it this year, and told him how I've taken this poem in over the years and how my relationship with it has sort of grown and changed. And he wrote me a letter back, an actual snail mail letter, and said that not only was it great to hear from me, good times, but that I should feel free to read the poem on my podcast. So here it is, with the writer's permission, and hopefully I do it justice. How to like it. These are the first days of fall. The wind at evening smells of roads still to be traveled, while the sound of leaves blowing across the lawns is like an unsettled feeling in the blood. The desire to get in a car and just keep driving. A man and a dog descend their front steps. The dog says, Let's go downtown and get crazy drunk. Let's tip over all the trash cans we can find. This is how dogs deal with the prospect of change. But in his sense of the season, the man is struck by the oppressiveness of his past, how his memories, which were shifting and fluid, have grown more solid, until it seems he can see remembered faces caught up among the dark places in the trees. The dog says, Let's pick up some girls and just rip off their clothes. Let's dig holes everywhere. Above his house, the man notices wisps of cloud, crossing the face of the moon. Like in a movie, he says to himself, a movie about a person leaving on a journey. He looks down the street to the hills outside of town and finds the cut where the road heads north. He thinks of driving on that road and the dusty smell of the car heater, which hasn't been used since last winter. The dog says, Let's go down to the diner and sniff people's legs. Let's stuff ourselves on burgers. In the man's mind, the road is empty and dark. Pine trees pressed down to the edge of the shoulder where the eyes of animals, fixed in his headlights, shine like small cautions against the night. Sometimes a passing truck makes his whole car shake. 
The dog says, let's go to sleep. Let's lie down by the fire and put our tails over our noses. The man wants to drive all night, crossing one state line after another, and never stop until the sun creeps into his rearview mirror. Then he'll pull over and rest a while before starting again, and at dusk he'll crest a hill, and there, filling a valley, will be the lights of a city entirely new to him. But the dog says, let's just go back inside. Let's not do anything tonight. So they walk back up the sidewalk to the front steps. How is it possible to want so many things and still want nothing? The man wants to sleep and wants to hit his head again and again against a wall. Why is it all so difficult? But the dog says, let's go make a sandwich. Let's make the tallest sandwich anyone's ever seen. And that's what they do. And that's where the man's wife finds him, staring into the refrigerator, as if into the place where the answers are kept. The ones telling why you get up in the morning, and how it is possible to sleep at night. Answers to what comes next, and how to like it. Well, I hope I did that justice. I was getting chills the whole time I read that. Let's get on with today's story. We're having a harsh winter this year in central Ohio. The kids have been off school for two days. As I left for work yesterday morning, I shook my teenage son awake and asked him if he might clear the drive before I got home. That evening, as I drove down our street, I saw that he had, in fact, shoveled the driveway all the way down to the massive pile of ice chunks and snow that the street plow deposited at the bottom of the apron at some point during the day. So, in between my car and the shoveled driveway was about an 18-inch tall ice chunk berm. And as I paused to look at it, I remembered how specific you need to be with teenagers when giving them a task, such as shovel the driveway and please clear the apron too, you know, so cars can get in and out. I made a poor choice that evening as the temperature dropped below 10 degrees Fahrenheit. I backed my Prius up to give it a running start, and then I made a run at the ice wall in hopes of breaking through to the shovel drive paradise that lay just on the other side. Sometimes I forget that I'm driving a Prius. I made it about halfway across when all my forward momentum ceased. What's more, trying to reverse out of it only spun the wheels uselessly. It was as if my car was on a pivot point atop the ice pile, spinning slowly from side to side, but never going forward or backward. So I collected up my son and my wife, and we began the lengthy process of digging out and pushing. It took some 30 minutes before we got the car back into the road, and then another 25 of shoveling before I made another run up the drive. When I finally made it into the house, I made a comment about my son's shoveling job to my wife, who quickly reminded me that I never taught him how to shovel the drive. <sighs> this is actually a pretty common refrain in my house, that I often expect my kids to be able to do things that I haven't actually taught them to do, in part because my memory is fuzzy on how I might have learned to do them, and in part because, you know, a driveway full of snow and a shovel? What else do I need to say? And I want to say this about my son. He is not lazy when it comes to his schoolwork or to things that interest him, which is to say he is a 100% typical teenager. And when given a task he finds distasteful, he naturally looks for the minimum amount of work he needs to do to complete it. 
I assume I was just the same at his age. And I do have one story I remember well that I remind myself of often when I'm thinking through how to follow up with my son on a job not well done. I was a junior in high school, just 17, and it was spring break. Some friends and I were trying to get some sort of trip together for the week, but it never came to pass that year. Meanwhile, two of my older sisters set off for beaches and sunshine, leaving me alone with my parents for probably the first time in my life. As the youngest, I was pretty used to slipping through the cracks by then, and frankly, I enjoyed the freedom it allowed, because I remember that all of a sudden my parents were unusually interested about where I was going and with whom and what time I'd be home. It totally sucked. Oldest children, I feel for you. Also, since I was home for the week, my dad gave me a handful of jobs he would have liked done. And, much like my son today, I looked for the quickest and easiest way out of each of them. I remember actually thinking what BS it was that my sisters got to go on these great trips. And just because I stayed home, I got all this extra work. I wasn't yet familiar with the term entitlement, but I sure was living it. Things came to a head around the job of thatching the lawn, which to my dad meant taking his ancient, yellow, rusted rake that he bought in 1952 at a store called Uncle Bill's, and then really driving it into the grass and breaking up all the dead blades from the previous winter. And again, in the spirit of complete transparency, my 17-year-old self entirely believed that my dad just came up with this bullshit job to punish me for some unknown reason. Because never before in the history of our lawn had we done this job. Not once. I took over caring for the lawn when I was 11 or 12. That was when my dad taught me to mow the lawn by showing me how to operate the mower and then following me around in the yard a bunch of times, telling me about everything I was doing wrong. And on the rare instances when he wasn't around... And remember, my dad was retired then, so he had really nothing better to do. He had no problem waking me up at the crack of dawn to correct rows he felt were too squiggly or mow down the mohawks of occasional misses here and there. It's a shitty way to learn something, this system of constant surveillance and negative feedback. But I think it's how a lot of boys of my generation learn to do yard work. We also learn to hate our dads. This latter sentiment is why I don't have my son mow the lawn. When he was 12, I taught him to use the mower and then tried to hang back. I tried not to be a dick, following him around and correcting him. And he really mangled those first few jobs, and I quietly remowed them. But also, he didn't seem to have the slightest regard for the equipment. He ran the mower over the steel dog cable in the yard twice, because it never occurred to him to pick it up first. And also because, and this is important to note, I never told him specifically to do it. And not wanting to be a dick about mowing the lawn, I pretty much gave him a green light to do the minimum, muck about for a while, fuck up the mower, and then head back inside to watch YouTube videos on his phone. The spring break thatching conflict with my dad came to a head when I realized, while I was thatching the backyard, the backyard for Christ's sakes, the one we didn't even fertilize, I realized that if I swung the old rake back like a golf club and brought it down to the grass hard and fast, it really got a lot more of the dead blades up. Much more effective, much more efficient. Unfortunately, after about three minutes of doing this sort of modified scything technique, the rake broke. The yellow rusty head separated entirely from its ancient cracked wooden pole. This is an obvious happening, right? You all saw that coming, right? But teenage me was legit surprised by it. I remember I had picked up the rake head and I was looking at it in my hand when my dad, 
who had been watching everything through the family room window, which I suppose was his version of hanging back, my dad came charging outside and accused me of having broken the rake on purpose. Now, 48-year-old me can see how he reached that conclusion, but 17-year-old me was aghast. What? I shouted. I did not break your shitty rake. It fell apart on me. Then my dad grabbed the handle from my hand and shouted, I watched you doing this! And he began to mimic what I considered to be my very innovative approach to thatching the yard. It's exactly what I was doing, I shouted back. It works way better. You're going to buy me a new rake, my dad shouted at me. What? I yelled back. You're crazy. My dad did not like to be called crazy. Not at all. I think I could have told him to F off in that moment, and I would have been in less trouble. I still remember the icy silence in the car as we drove to Kmart to get a new shitty rake. Kmart because I think Uncle Bill's was out of business by then. Both my dad and I seething silently, convinced we were right and the other party unreasonable. We were two creatures of spite, living on different planets, galaxies apart, an expanse between us, patently unbridgeable. So, I know where my son is at. And honestly, in my whole life I've been an anything-worth-doing-you-do-yourself kind of guy. I am always weighing the effort to show someone how to do something against how much time it will take to just get it done myself. And not just with my kids. This is a trait that has hampered me as a manager and led to long stretches in my career in which my wife regularly tells me that I'm going to work myself to death. As I sit in the coffee shop on this cold day, a simple thought occurs to me, and that is, it's never occurred to me to think of myself as a teacher. I mean, the one trait I value in people who work for me is self-reliance. It's a willingness to just figure shit out. And also, as I sit here, and somehow again, for the first time, I'm realizing how sad that is, my reluctance to teach. Because I'm a parent, after all. Teaching is what we're supposed to be doing. Now that my kids are teenagers, though, I've told them that I've become less of a teacher and more of a coach. And I've told them that as they get into their 20s, I'll be less of a coach and more of a consultant that they'll sometimes turn to as they figure out living on their own. It's a pretty shitty conversation to have with kids, I guess. But my only hope for them is that they enter young adulthood, if not self-reliant, then at least able or willing to try and figure shit out on their own. And I've been chatting with my kids as I've worked on this essay. My daughter reminded me that when they were little, say seven and five, I would give them no-help challenges where they had to figure out how to do things like refill the sandbox or set up a sprinkler without any help from me. And if they did it, I gave them each a dollar. So I guess even though I didn't follow them around the yard telling them what they were doing wrong, I was still kind of a dick. And also a dollar? Cheap-ass dick. I kept the rake story in mind when I got home from work a few weeks before Christmas to find the head of the snow shovel separated from the handle, a clean break, and both parts just lying in the center of a half-shoveled driveway. What happened to the shovel? I asked my wife as I came in from the garage. Oh, she said. I asked the boy to shovel part of the driveway and it broke. Broke how? I asked. Then I paused. An old dog considering a new trick. Never mind, I said. I don't want to know. And I headed outside to start the snowblower. Yes, I have a snowblower. 
When I was in my early 40s and still convinced shoveling was the best way to clear a driveway, I slipped a disc in my lower back working on some heavy wet snow. And despite two pleasantly medicated weeks of pain management that followed, and again, apologies to my clients if I seemed a little bit off during that time, we resolved to purchase a snowblower. And let me just pause for a second and just say this to those of you who live in the snow belt and are still shoveling your snow. Just go buy a snowblower. Do it right now. Don't even finish this episode. What, actually, you could listen to this episode on your way to the store. Because even if you use it only once or twice a year, it is going to be the greatest value add to your life. I am so thrilled with it that whenever it snows, I do my driveway, I do the sidewalks to both corners, and all of my neighbors' driveways. All of them. Usually eight to ten driveways in all. And still, it only takes me maybe an hour. I might not be the friendliest neighbor guy, small talk chatting-wise, but I know when we move from one neighborhood to another that at least in this small way, I was going to be missed. And I've met my new neighbors this winter when I cleared their driveways. And also later as they stop by my house to give me plates of cookies and also once a lemon bunt cake. I love being snowblower guy. And I'm pretty protective of the machine, if you're wondering why I haven't taught my son to use it. I have, in fact, shown him how to use it, but I do need to be nearby if he does. And if I'm already in the general area, frankly, I don't mind doing it myself. So these rationalizations and justifications over how well I've prepared my kids to become working people have led to some weird fears. Fears about my kids. Fears I don't seem able to shake. The kind that, as my son prepares to go off to college, wake me up at night. Irrational fears, I know, but pretty fucking persistent ones as well. The first fear is that they won't be hard workers. It's easy to think this if you ask your kids to do a job and they just groan and barely lift their heads up from their phones. But this is an irrational fear, I think. The kids work hard at school, and I suspect once they find something engaging, they'll bust ass at that too. I've spent a good deal of time recently thinking back to how I changed from a shitty, rake-breaking 17-year-old to someone my wife thinks is working himself to death. And that's a change that I think started later that summer of my 17th year, when I got a job working in the parking lot at Cleveland Municipal Stadium. Once the influx of cars were parked, you could go inside and watch the Indians and the Browns for free. Plus, you got paid five bucks an hour, cash, under the table, as they say. Greatest job ever, right? That's what teenage me thought, and I threw myself into it with a gusto not normally seen in my fellow parking lot employees. And before you know it, I was working weeknights at parking garages and doing valets on weekends, even taking over minor management tasks. I was reliable, and I worked hard. And I think it was in this job that I realized that no matter where I worked or what I did in life, if I could just be those two things, everything else would work out just fine. And also... My dad loved this. He loved that his kid had gone out and gotten the gig on his own. He loved that I drove myself from our comfortable suburb to downtown Cleveland, where I mixed it up with all kinds of people and had all manner of new experiences, gritty, urban experiences, like I bought a gold chain from a guy who approached me while I was filling up at the gas station. He took out a lighter and lit it and held it to the chain, which is how he said I knew it was real gold and a real steal 
at 20 bucks. But in less than a week, it started to turn green, and then that weird green stain seeped into my neck. And I recall it taking several weeks before that went away. And my dad really loved it that I always had some cash in my pocket, some folding money as he'd call it, and I stopped asking him for a few bucks every time I went out with my friends. And during my time in this job, I got many of my high school friends' jobs as well, and some of them took to it like I did, working hard and enjoying the free Browns games. But others kind of half-assed it, and I was often embarrassed that I was the one who'd brought them into the fold. And this taught me something about getting your friends' jobs, which is why I can be pretty stingy when someone from high school pings me and asks for a recommendation on LinkedIn. There are a lot of other things my dad taught me growing up that I haven't passed on to my son. How to change the oil is a big one. I learned how to do it, and my dad was always checking the mileage on my car to make sure I did it regularly. I hated doing it, which is why when I was 18 and the first 30-minute oil change place opened in our suburb, I took my car there, and 30 minutes and 30 bucks later, I was done. But when I told my dad this, he was enraged. True, red-hot burning rage, simmering from his ears. He demanded that I show him the receipt, which I did, and he shook his head, and he spit out between hot breaths of disbelief that he just couldn't understand why someone would pay someone to change their oil. And I smiled, and I said, But it is my money, Dad. And that just made him angrier, because it was true. And he stomped off to deal with his anger somewhere else. I do not know a single person who changes their own oil now. In fact, I took my son with me to the oil change place recently and explained why you should have your oil changed every 3,000 miles or so. And we watched as they filled the fluids and fixed a headlight, and they had us on our way in 15 minutes. And when we got home, my wife asked where we had been, and my son said, Dad was teaching me how to change the oil. I can only assume that my dad, my son's grandpa, heard this comment across the hundreds of miles that separate us now, and that his blood veritably boiled. I still worry that I'm about to send my kid off to college without him knowing how to bleed his brakes or start a reluctant mower or slip a punch and counter. I suspect what has me worried and occasionally lying awake is something on a bigger scale, something more ephemeral, something that has to do with the nature of work itself. It's something I realized just last year, when a few of my high school friends and I got together at a bar after work. My friend Dana was in town, so we all met to catch up, which is something we very rarely do anymore. Here are some things you should know about my friend Dana. 1. He makes the lamest jokes you have ever heard. He has honestly elevated the bad joke into an art form. He was making dad jokes when he was 14 years old, and he's only gotten better at it ever since. 2. He is one of the hardest working people I have ever known. I got Dana a job with the parking company, and he busted his ass at it. He was always hustling, reliable, and hardworking. And several of his brothers also got jobs there, and they also worked hard. They're just, they're a hardworking clan, and I liked working alongside them. 3. One time in the parking garage... Dana was walking through the entrance lane when the yellow wood gate arm came down and broke over his head. And while 48-year-old me, looking back, realizes I should have made sure he was okay and that he was possibly very likely concussed, 17-year-old me just fell on the ground laughing and then told everybody at school about it, giving rise to the nickname Gatehead, which Dana bore proudly until his nickname changed to Tilehead. And 
I've just deleted the sentence I had written explaining this new nickname because, hey, we were all young once and made poor decisions, and there's no need for me to go promoting Dana's any further. So we're catching up with Dana, talking about our kids, what they do and don't do as teenagers, and we're trying to remember if we were or were not like them. And then he said something that struck me in the moment and still hangs out in my mind pretty regularly. He was talking about having his boys help with some jobs around the house with their dad and their granddad, and he said, you know, first we had to teach them how to work. Right? Teach them how to work. That's such a deceptively simple sentence. Who among us, after all, doesn't know how to work? Right? But I get what he meant. He wanted to teach his boys how to work like he does, hard and reliably, to make that transition that I made from a shitty rake breaker to a hard-working parking lot guy to what I am now, a well-intentioned creative director taking pains not to work myself to death. What caused that change? Was it normal? Was it natural? Or was it taught to me, taught to me on those long afternoons when my dad followed me around the yard and told me what I was doing wrong? And as I think about that, I realize I think there's a series of stages we go through on the path to a career, on the path of how to work, or at least stages I think I went through. There was the how do I get out of this stage, in which I believed there was always a way to get out of an assigned chore, flooding the lawnmower so it won't start, for example, pretending to be asleep, running over the steel dog cable, things like this. This gives way to the, what's the absolute minimum I can do to finish this stage? Which was me, thatching that damn lawn. Teenage boys in particular are pretty bad at judging this stage. Their brains just aren't developed enough to realize that a broken rake doesn't mean take the afternoon off. It means get your ass into the car for an uncomfortable drive to Kmart. This then becomes the exactly what you said stage, which may be how you go about your first job. You don't worry about being impressive or out hustling your peers. You just do exactly what you're asked to do. No more, no less. When I ask my kids to do the dishes, this is exactly what they do. Leaving the food out, the table unwiped, the floor unswept, sometimes leaving the oven on. When they have to put the dishes away, it never occurs to them that there are specific places different dishes go in our kitchen. I always know when my son has done the dishes because I'll open up the cupboard where we keep the mugs and I'll find a spatula and a garlic press. After this, there's the, what do I have to do for this job to be completely done and not require any additional attention from me? This is a big transition because it's based on a real self-driven sense of completion, of understanding everything that could possibly come back to you and getting that done beforehand, cutting it off at the pass, if you will. I always remind my kids that doing the dishes also means wiping down the table and counters and sweeping the floor and taking out the recycling. And someday, this may sink in for them. One more thing about this stage, by the way, it's not particular to teenagers. And in fact, it's where I find myself now when I'm working on a project I'm not particularly interested in or working with a person whom I find challenging. Put your head down, I tell myself. Do everything that could possibly prolong this job any further and then move on. You might end up in this stage for your entire career, depending on the kind of people you work for and if you're interested in developing new skills or not. I think mulching is a good job to demonstrate this stage. We've got six beds around our home that have to be mulched each year because of some rule in the suburbs that no one will tell you exists directly, but most certainly does. And you can mulch until you're out of mulch, but that doesn't mean the job is done. The job is done when you're out of beds, and the beds are, in fact, weed-free 
So yeah, it's a long, solid two days of work. But if you can get it done in May, you don't have to worry about it for 12 months. As a quick aside, there's a house on our street that had a stack of mulch bags in their driveway from May until August. And then that's when the bags were distributed around their house and just sort of laid down in front of the various beds. But what I think is a truly heroic moment of civil disobedience, the bags just remained there, sitting in front of those beds, unopened, undistributed, forever. They're still there now, a year later as I write this. And I hope there's nothing bad going on with whomever lives there. I don't know these people. I just hope it's a guy or a lady who hauled those unopened bags around to the various beds around her house and then said, ah, good enough. The final stage is a bit trickier to articulate, but if you've been lucky and have had decent managers or mentors along your journey, you might arrive at a holistic way of looking at work, of really tuning into what the end product needs to be or do, and then making that. It's harder than you think. Requirements are often vague and liable to change. But if you're clear on the overall vision, you'll keep moving towards the right thing. When you approach your work in this way, you may surprise and delight your clients. Of course, if your sense of the vision is off, you might also have some churn to deal with. But when you reach this phase in your career, your experience matters. All of the project you've worked on, all of the things you've done, it starts to feel like each thing you've completed has led naturally to the next. And I think that's as close as you can get to happiness or contentment in a career when you're working for someone else, helping them towards their vision rather than one of your own. So, take it if you can get it. Now the question is, have I put my kids on the right path with all of these stages? I have no idea. I only know that I've taken a far different tack than my dad's approach, but I don't know that it's been any more effective. The truth is, I'm a lousy teacher, impatient, unsure of what needs to be said, and constantly misreading what one should safely assume. I remember visiting a friend's house back in the early aughts when we were toting a diaper bag and constantly chasing after two little ones. They had a small wooden sign on their bookshelf that read, prepare your child for the path, not the path for your child. I don't know who said it, the sign didn't say, it's probably generic enough that no one can claim to have said it. But I've thought about that little sign a lot as I parented my kids. And lately, as my son takes the ACT and visits college campuses, I find I'm thinking about it all of the time. Because I'm worried that I've done neither of these things for my son. And that it's just too late for a last-minute cram session before he heads off into the jungle of some tidy campus in the Midwest. I suppose this is another irrational fear. My wife points out to me that kids just don't leave your life when they turn 18. That there's a reason why you can keep them on your insurance until they're 26 and on your Netflix account forever, I guess. But none of these things are comforting me. And the more I wrestle with this essay, the more I'm losing sleep over it. Worried that I'm about to throw him to the wolves. It's a unique flavor of anxiety for me. And when it rises, it definitely seems to be in charge. Now, my son and I ended up at the family counselor for a few therapy sessions recently. It's going to be a long time before I'm ready to talk about what brought us there, if ever. But I will say that it was here, sitting next to my oldest on a little brown couch, that I was first able to articulate my fear that I have ill-prepared him for what comes next. And as we dug into it, I started to realize how dumb many of my examples were. Like the fact that I haven't changed my own oil in years, 
So why am I so upset that my son may never do this in his life? It's not like the 30-minute oil chain shops are going out of business anytime soon. So I wondered if my great worry was really this, that my kids won't be hard workers. And that seemed like a ridiculous kind of worry once I said it out loud in front of my kid who had just aced his ACT and has no problem digging in for hours on end if the subject interests him. And when I said I never taught him how to defend himself, how to roll with a punch and counter, he pointed out that he is, in fact, a second-degree black belt and feels like he's got that covered just fine. So I did what a dad should do when his kid tells him something like that. I pivoted my hips, I snapped out a jab that caught him just under his chin and whipped his head back into the wall. Are you shouting, what the fuck, right now? I'm sorry, I never did that. I never would do that. That was a terrible thing to write and a worse thing to record, if you want to know the truth. Punching someone in the face during a therapy session has to rank right up there with shooting the Pope or paying hush money to porn stars. I think I was very awkwardly trying to make a joke because what did happen next is still a little bit hard for me to talk about, and I thought that maybe a joke up top would help me ease into it. Jesus, the fuck was I thinking? Here's what did happen next. After I tried and failed to come up with any more good examples of how I have failed to prepare my child for the path, there was a very long, pregnant silence, punctuated only by the sound of my son playing with a fidget in his hand. And during that pause, my throat got thick and my eyes teared up. And finally, finally I said, I guess the thing is, I'm just going to miss you, kiddo, once you go. And I've already missed more than half of all the great stuff you've done growing up because I was always holed up in some goddamn cubicle somewhere, breaking my back for someone else, worrying about the fucking mortgage and the credit cards and getting the oil changed every 3,000 miles. And after I said this, it was quiet for a long time, a full minute at least, during which I wiped my eyes and fought an epic battle to keep from breaking down into a completely unhinged, blubbering mess. And then this long silence was finally, mercifully, broken by my son, who looked at me and said these words. Can we go to Taco Bell after this? And I laughed out loud, because there was simply nothing else behind his question other than the obvious. He's a teenage boy who's always hungry. There was no forgiveness in his words, no real sense that he had even registered what I had arrived at or why it was upsetting me so. And all those things, they still matter. And I hope we'll get to processing them in their due time. But for now, this moment on this day, my kiddo was hungry. And there was a Taco Bell just up the street. And that's where we went and ate $20 worth of taco variations and drank something called Baja Blast Mountain Dew, the availability of which caused my son to do a fist pump. And we didn't worry for a single motherfucking second about what might be coming next, or if we were prepared to meet it, or even, as the poet Stephen Dobbins has wondered, how to like it.
I hope you like that story, everyone. This is an essay I really wrestled with for a number of years, and I finally finished writing it during last year's mulch season, and I've been tinkering with it ever since. A new mulch season looms next month, but I wanted to end with a text message that my wife sent me last year. We had spent the weekend mulching and got about 80% of the beds done. Hashtag first world problems. And she decided she and the kids would get the rest done after school on Monday. And here's what she texted me. The kids and I finished mulching. I had to scream at them to get them to help. And they made me cry three times. But it's done. That all checks out, you know. Sounds pretty par for the course if you want to know the truth. If you work hard and you settle your family in the comfortable middle class suburbs, no one tells you that you'll forever be under the thumb of big mulch. Except for my one neighbor across the street, whom I still do not know, and whose bags of mulch are still lying unopened in the beds around their house. This small gesture of defiance of the unwritten rules against which we measure our lives. Do not go gentle into that good night, dear unknown across the street neighbor. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. Good times, everyone. Pete Brown Says is the property of Blue Monkey Communications and is a work of creative nonfiction audio written and produced by me, Pete Brown. This show is written to the very best of my memory. Some music in the show comes from Brian Haig and Kevin Davison. And the closing song, I'm Not Myself, is by their band, Delicious. Other audio may have been sourced from the websites audionautics.com, incompetech.com, the YouTube free music library, freesound.org, and podcastmusic.com. Most pieces are licensed under Creative Commons. Please see the show notes at PeteBrownSays.com for complete attribution. If you like the show, please leave us a review on iTunes or Google Play. And as always, thanks for your time listening today. Good times, everyone. Even my friends, dear, please.